The following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs. Yeah. Some say we've always been insane. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game. It's not our fault that women are frequently pitted against each other. It's a tradition that spans generations and cultures. As a result, many find themselves sculpted by conflict more than friendship, even when their nemesis has no comment in return. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we examine notable women and the rivalries that help define them. Today's tale comes from the cutthroat world of network news. It's the tale of Katie Couric and Diane Sawyer. Katie Couric was born on January 7, 1957, in Arlington, Virginia. After graduating from university with a degree in American Studies, Katie began her broadcasting career as a desk assistant at the NBC News Bureau in Washington, D.C. There, she got her first taste of the less-than-glamorous side of news media. Her bubbly enthusiasm and winning smile made her an easy target for harassment. As was par for the course in those days, Katie was subjected to smoky conference rooms, ridiculous requests, and rampant misogyny. She was labeled perky and a lightweight, and no doubt was on the receiving end of at least one pat on the ass and being called honey by creepy men old enough to be her father. Still, in spite of the toxic environment, Katie was hooked. She loved the energy, the competition, and being on the ground floor of history as it unfolded. Surrounded by chauvinistic senior reporters didn't discourage her. It inspired her. She knew she could run with them and run circles around them if given the chance. She just needed the opportunity. So she set out to create one. From there, she joined CNN as an assignment editor and later a producer and on-air reporter. Her performance led to a job as a reporter for a network television station in Miami. There, she honed her reporting and storytelling skills. On camera, her empathetic and disarming personality allowed her to connect with the audience in a way male reporters couldn't. But this was a double-edged sword. The same personality traits that made her charming and approachable on air made her seem weak among male peers and superiors. It's an all-too-frustrating reality for any woman looking to break into an industry dominated by men. You can't be a man, and you can't act like a woman. She wasn't the first to encounter it, and she sure wasn't the last. But Katie was a fighter, and the challenge only served to make her more determined. She would be the first woman to get behind that news desk as anchor one day, and she wouldn't let anyone stop her. Three years later, she returned to Washington, D.C. as a reporter and anchor for an NBC affiliate. There, she earned her first Associated Press Award and an Emmy. 
And those guys in the newsroom could suck it. Her star rose even higher when in 1989, she joined the NBC News as a deputy Pentagon correspondent and finally caught her break. The role allowed her to cover national stories with broader significance and importance. After rocking it for a few years, she transitioned to the Today Show as a national correspondent before settling into the anchor seat next to Bryant Gumbel. Her dream desk was finally in sight. Katie really grew during her time at the Today Show. Her warm and engaging presence allowed her to establish a strong connection with viewers, and she was known for her ability to balance hard-hitting news stories with lighter pieces. She wasn't stuffy, and the audience loved her. Her versatility and charisma made her stand out, and she often added an unexpected humanity and humor to the show. She was confident, but didn't take herself too seriously and wasn't afraid to step out of the traditional news anchor persona and show it. While recording a cooking segment with Chef Emeril Lagasse, Katie suffered a case of butterfingers and accidentally dropped a dish on the floor. Rather than becoming flustered, she laughed it off as if it had occurred in her own kitchen. She also battled co-host Matt Lauer in an on-air donut eating contest. And when other hosts and guests loosened up, she relaxed even more. Every year when the Today Show hosts dressed up for Halloween, Katie would do her best to outshine them all, with an enthusiasm traditionally reserved for deciding what to wear to the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. One year, she dressed up as Donald Trump, complete with a suit and comb-over wig. Speaking of assholes, Katie's decision in March of 2000 to televise her colonoscopy stands out as one of the most impactful moments in daytime television history. Following the death of her husband from colon cancer, Katie revealed a lot more than her grief when she underwent the procedure live on air to raise awareness about the disease. The segment was credited with significantly increasing colonoscopy rates, a phenomenon that has since been dubbed the Couric Effect. Those moments, along with many others, made her a beloved figure on morning television and one of the most recognized faces on daytime TV. Her only competition? The other leading lady, Diane Sawyer. Diane was a network news fixture long before Katie came along. Similar to our girl, Diane launched a career in journalism in the late 1960s when she landed a job as a weather forecaster for a station in Louisville, Kentucky. From there, the former English major slash beauty queen became a press aide to the Nixon administration and later a staff assistant to President Nixon himself. In 1978, she joined CBS as a general assignment reporter. But internally, this wasn't a celebrated event. According to reports, many of the rank-and-file men throughout the network were less than thrilled about it. There have even been suggestions that news anchor Dan Rather was against her being hired at all. The crew of A-list Watergate sleuths just didn't understand. Did CBS really need a Nixon loyalist on the team? And a beauty queen at that? But Diane held her head up and stuck with it. And in 1981, she was promoted to political correspondent, where she covered the 1980 and 1984 presidential campaigns. Her male counterparts had to admit she did an okay job. For a woman, of course. 
She did okay enough that network executives named her co-anchor of the CBS Morning News that same year, sitting alongside Bill Curtis. In 1989, Diane moved to ABC, where she co-anchored the evening news program Primetime Live with Sam Donaldson. There, she was able to break away from more female stereotypes and show her investigative chops even more. During her tenure, she investigated hard-hitting news like the impact of international sanctions on Iraq, specifically focusing on how they affected the lives of ordinary citizens. Her reports sparked debate about the effects of sanctions on vulnerable populations, something that hadn't been previously considered. Her interview with Michael Jackson and his then-wife Lisa Marie Presley was another home run. Touching on Jackson's music, his personal life, and recent allegations of sexual misconduct, the piece was watched by an estimated 60 million people. She also covered the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks and their aftermath, bringing vital information and perspectives. In the early days of the crisis, her hard-hitting coverage was some of the only news loved ones of those involved had. Her report on supermarket chain Food Lion also proved significant when her investigation revealed some pretty cringy unsanitary practices. It also led to a significant lawsuit regarding journalistic ethics and methods. But has this ever really bothered Dan Rather? Ten years later, Diane was promoted to co-anchor of Good Morning America with Charles Gibson. And that's where our story resumes, with Katie anxiously biting her nails. In spite of all her on-air confidence and charm, Katie found Diane intimidating. Leading her in experience and on-air time by little over a decade, Diane was an immovable obstacle, the one person capable of bringing her dreams crashing down. Off the record, Katie really wondered why Diane hadn't made it to the anchor desk already. Blonde and sophisticated, with a million-dollar voice, Diane was everything a newscaster should be. And everything Katie wasn't. Oh, and did I mention she was tall? For the first time in her career, Katie really felt vulnerable. She doubted her fun, feisty persona and began to wonder what the studio would be like if she were 5'11 and aloof. But there was little time for that. Behind the scenes, the pressure to beat the competition never let up. Both morning show teams worked frantically to ensure their show was the highest rated and most watched. Naturally, the competition extended to news coverage as well. Both shows raced to scoop the other, to be the first to break major news. Short of that, they also vied to provide the most comprehensive, engaging, and insightful coverage. <laughs> if you can't be the first, you can always be the best. Katie and Diane were always on the lookout for the next big story or the next most sought-after interview in head-to-head -head competition to secure exclusives with headline-making figures, politicians, and celebrities. Booking the biggest guest or securing the biggest interview could significantly impact a show's ratings, but only for a short time. It wasn't a battle of what have you done as much as what have you done lately, where everyone kept score but no one remembered a damn thing making the pressure even more intense. Chasing down the next it story often involved relentless determination and persuasion. There were late-night phone calls, convincing pitches, and 
more than a few lavish dinners and gift baskets to entice guests to appear on their respective shows. It also involved timing. If a source decided to appear on both shows, something neither would be able to control but would know about through the grapevine, the game wasn't up just yet. If Diane noticed a guest was scheduled to appear on the Diday show on Wednesday, she might decide to release her interview with that same person the day before. Either way, it wouldn't matter. To the public, Good Morning America could claim the first exclusive and leave the Today Show in the dust. And neither was afraid to play dirty. According to unnamed sources, when a friend of Diane's, a public figure, was being pursued by Katie's people, they would receive a call from Diane's husband, movie director Mike Nichols, who would say in the very nicest way that he and Diane were prepared to cut off all social contact if that friend appeared on Today first. That kind of ferocity drove Katie, who at one point declared to her team, that woman must be stopped. Her words of self-described ire were almost a rallying cry and later printed on a throw pillow she kept in her office. In spite of this, Katie scored two major interviews for the Today Show in 1992, one with Anita Hill and another with Ross Perot. Anita had come into the national spotlight in the previous year when she accused Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. The interview with Ross Perot was an entirely different story and one only Katie could have pulled off. Perot was a billionaire businessman who had decided to run for president as an independent candidate. Katie pitched her interview as a way to allow viewers to get a better understanding of his unconventional platform and political views. To top any subsequent ones coming from competitors, her team convinced Perot's people to allow them to take live calls from viewers asking questions directly. One of those calling asked Perot if he could do a Vulcan mind meld to understand the national debt better. It might not have done much to boost his chances. Perot lost the election, but Katie made out like a ratings bandit. She went on to interview JFK Jr., Laura Bush, and J.K. Rowling before she turned into a bigoted pile of crap. Around the same time, Diane landed a rare interview with Whitney Houston, an achievement that gave her a huge leg up. After it aired, the interview became notorious for its blunt probe into Whitney's substance abuse and personal struggles. At one point during the interview, Diane decided to confront the singer about her eating disorders, producing photographs of a notably thinner Whitney. She used these same photographs to segue into her rumored drug habit. Feeling backed into a corner, Whitney famously responded, First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much for me to ever smoke crack. Let's get that, okay? I don't do crack. I don't do that. Crack is whack. Katie watched it like everyone else, but didn't like it. She thought Diane's approach was exploitative. She crossed a line, and her tactics were less about seeking truth than more about sensationalizing. There was a difference between conducting a revealing interview and, and selling out troubled, often traumatized people for sound bites and ratings. It didn't sit well with her. In the early 2000s, Alita St. James gave birth to twins. What made this newsworthy was that the energy healer and life coach did so at the age of 57. 
Overnight, Alita became one of the oldest women to give birth in the United States, and both journalists scrambled to get the story. Diane won out and interviewed her soon after. Upon hearing the news, Katie pondered who she had to blow in order to get the story. And then she said it out loud. Now, obviously this was a joke. The snarky remark was intended for her office crew only and never meant to be quoted. Still, it was leaked to other media outlets, forcing Katie to have to walk it back. Her reply, and I quote, I'm pretty sure I speak for Diane when I say neither of us ever resorted to actual fellatio to land an interview, but we both engaged in the metaphoric kind, flattering gatekeepers, family members, and whoever else stood in the way of a big get. And that's one way to put it. When teenagers Jacqueline Maris and Tamara Brooks were abducted and thankfully rescued, their harrowing tale became the focus of a media storm. As always, Katie and Diane were eager to secure the first interview with the girls. According to Katie, Diane worked her magic and initially seemed to have the upper hand. She portrayed herself to the girls' family as a devoted family woman herself, presumably attempting to create an emotional bond and sense of empathy. As another caring family woman, Diane hoped to make herself more appealing, the one they could trust to tell the young girl's story. But Katie's team wasn't going to give up that easily. When they approached the family, they cleverly highlighted the differences between the hosts when it came to those family situations. Katie was a widowed mother of two young girls, while Diane was only a stepmother. Without actually coming out and saying it, the Today team went out of their way to imply that Katie, having personally experienced the challenges and fears of motherhood, could do a better job for them. She would take care of those girls and their story as if they were her own. The strategy worked. She ultimately won the exclusive. Scooping the other side out of a big story and better ratings came with what could almost be described as a high. One that Katie admitted was intoxicating. She loved getting under Diane's skin, freely admitting that Diane got under hers just as much. Mutually competitive? Sure. Contemptuous? Now that depends on who you ask. You see, Diane has never admitted Katie was a rival at all. As of this recording, a Google search of people Diane Sawyer reportedly had issues with includes Barbara Walters, Connie Chung, Charlie Gibson, Caitlyn Jenner, Britney Spears, and Sue Sylvester. I'm not even sure who that is. And while there are several references to the feud between her and Katie, every one of them comes from Camp Couric. While Katie was seething with enough venom to embroider on a pillow, Diane said nothing. If anything, she focused her contempt on her perceived rival, Barbara Walters. Barbara was every bit the bane of Diane's existence that Katie perceived her to be. The original OG, Barbara had been facing down celebrities, world leaders, and network executives since Diane was cutting her teeth on copy. And in an industry content to keep women as a rarity, Barbara had no interest in making room for her little ingenue either. Producers and assistants speculated that Barbara and Diane were determined to kill each other, to wipe each other off the face of the map. 
maybe because of their close proximity, their similar personalities, or simply because they were forced to compete for the same positions and respect at the same news network. Off record, the two got along about as well as Swifties and Ticketmaster. Stories of icy encounters in hallways and battles over the best office space became the stuff of newsroom legend. Even the Christmas party guest list was a subject of contention. On one occasion, both women had unknowingly booked interviews with the same person on the same day. Bumping into each other with their crews in tow gave a whole new meaning to awkward. When ABC landed the opportunity to interview Monica Lewinsky at the height of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal, both women vied for the exclusive. It was eventually assigned to Barbara, much to Diane's disdain. The same contest occurred when O.J. Simpson was promoting his book, If I Did It. No doubt both women felt the need to take a shower as they competed for the privilege of helping O.J. hawk his tragedy-exploiting money grab. In the end, Simpson ultimately selected Barbara for the honor. While it had to be a whole new level of nausea for Diane, in the end, were either of these women really winners? Despite their professional competition, off-camera, Katie and Diane had a lot of respect for each other. They saw each other at correspondent events and did charity work together. And they ran into each other for news stories all the time. No one keyed a car or anything. Each kept their public greetings warm and pleasant. The public never saw outward signs of a festering feud. Like the true rock stars they were, each woman maintained nothing but a respectable front, speaking highly of the other. In the face of other journalists, Diane called Katie a friend. Katie told Harper's Bazaar, I think we like each other a lot. And Barbara told USA Today, I have affection and admiration for Diane. Which prompted Diane to follow up in her own biography, writing, We do compete for interviews, but Barbara and I do more to maintain a real friendship and camaraderie than a lot of people in rivalrous relationships. But in spite of their best spin, stories of their escapades circulated by way of other reporters and authors, and occasionally, the feud between the women became a story itself. Of course, those involved had no comment. When asked, representatives for Katie and Diane, as well as ABC, NBC, and CNN, had no comment. Former ABC News president David Weston dismissed any conflict between the women as ancient history, whether fact or fiction, and accused anyone choosing to report on the so-called story of not checking their facts. That doesn't sound like much. Weston intended for his words not to hold weight with the public. But in the journalism world, that is a kick in the nuts. A friend of Diane's once told the Daily Beast that the claims were just too ridiculous to even consider. Ridiculous? I don't know. Competition can make anyone a little crazy, and in that department, journalists always seem to have a head start. Whether real or imagined, it certainly felt personal to Katie. In 2006, Katie ultimately won out when she was named CBS Evening News Anchor. The achievement felt just as good as she dreamed it would. Katie was now in the exact spot once held by Walter Cronkite, finally a force of her own. She wielded that power to continue to draw big-name interviews. In 2008, she aired a series of interviews with Sarah Palin, the then-vice presidential candidate running on the Republican ticket along with John McCain. The interviews had significant draw. 
Sarah was something of an unknown to the national political stage, and both parties were eager for her to open up and let the public get to know her. But things quickly changed when Sarah struggled to provide clear or substantive answers to her questions. From topics like foreign policy to economic matters, Sarah faltered. When Katie asked Sarah what newspapers and magazines she read to stay informed about world events, she couldn't name a single one. Sarah finally responded that she read, quote-unquote, all of them. All of them that have been in front of me over all these years. Another key moment was when Katie asked about her foreign policy experience and with regards to Russia in particular. The question wasn't intended to be a curveball, considering at the time Sarah was Alaska's sitting governor. But again, instead of citing specific information or even general scenarios that demonstrated her abilities, Sarah chose to rely on her state's physical proximity as some kind of insight. Quote, there are next door neighbors and you can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska, from an island in Alaska. Statements that were later widely mocked in a manner similar to the old joke, hey, I can see my house from here. It was a lot to take in. For Diane, too. Insiders claimed that when she heard the news, Diane gulped. It shouldn't have worked out that way. After all, Diane had busted every chop to secure the biggest stories and the biggest ratings. In response, she's said to have lobbied hard to replace Charlie Gibson on World News Tonight. It was a savvy move. By 2009, Charlie had lost most of his momentum and drive. And having dealt with the likes of Barbara and Katie for so long, battle-ready Diane pushed for a replacement. And it was her time. And given the lengths she was willing to go to get the other things she wanted, executives paid attention. They may have been weighing out the potential consequences of denying her, too. If she was willing to pull out bad pictures of Whitney Houston, imagine what she'd do to them. By December, network executives granted her wish, and Diane became the anchor of ABC World News. She was the second woman to reach this milestone, but she intended to be first in the ratings from that point on. Some of the stories she reported on include coverage of poverty and the struggles of families in Appalachia, the Arab Spring uprisings, the 2012 presidential election, and an interview with Congresswoman Gabby Giffords after she was shot in a grocery store parking lot by a wackadoodle who had no business carrying a firearm. And of course, she did a sensationalized piece or two, having kind of cornered the market. Her interview with J.C. Duggard was the first public statement made by the young woman since being kidnapped as a child and held captive for 18 years. And drew nearly 15 million viewers. Katie stayed with the CBS News Machine until 2011 before heading back over to ABC to host her own daytime talk show, appropriately named Katie. Similar in style to The Oprah Winfrey Show and The Ellen DeGeneres Show, the hour-long talk show covered a variety of subjects ranging from current events, social issues, health topics, and personal interest. Each episode was completely unique, allowing Katie to be more flexible and creative. Some of her more notable interviews included an exclusive with Manti Teo, a Notre Dame football star who was involved in a bizarre hoax later deemed to be catfishing, and interviews with the families of victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings. From its debut, the show faced criticism. Some critics and fans of Katie argued the show didn't fully utilize her talents as a hard-hitting journalist and was far too focused on lighter, entertainment-oriented fluff pieces. 
as far as complaints go, she could have done worse. If nothing else, it showed her work really mattered and was even missed. Despite decent ratings, Katie was canceled after its second season. The decision, reportedly due to a combination of production costs and the show's inability to be sustainable. Back at the ranch, Diane was stepping into her own drama. In 2012, she and her team did a piece about Beef Products Incorporated and its manufacturing of a meat product later referred to as Pink Slime. The meat packing company took offense at the unflattering report and sued ABC for defamation. BPI alleged the month-long coverage was misleading and scared off customers, resulting in hundreds of layoffs and lost revenue. Named as a co-defendant in the original lawsuit, Diane testified during the deposition, maintaining, I read the script. It seemed to be absolutely factual and fair to me as raising an important issue. We were in the business of trying to get answers for consumers. The judge decided Diane believed what she was reporting to be true and dismissed her involvement. ABC wasn't so lucky. The network opted to settle for over $177 million. Diane remained behind the anchor desk for five years before stepping down in 2014 in favor of what she called a new role within the network, which would allow her to focus on investigative specials and newsmaking interviews. She was replaced by David Muir. Months into the job, Muir, nicknamed the Brad Pitt of news anchors, was credited for leading World News to a fourth-quarter win over NBC's Nightly News for the first time in seven years. And no doubt a small segment of Old Guard agreed. An unnamed NBC News executive told the Washington Post, as long as Diane was on the show, they weren't going to win. When David Muir filled in for her, bang, they'd win the day. That was pretty harsh. In her defense, towards the end of her run, World News ratings were already on the way up. But talk of Diane stepping down to dedicate herself to investigative reporting wasn't entirely lip service. The stories she was interested in covering took time, and the constant content demand of world news offered very little. No longer under that kind of pressure, she and her team worked on landmark stories like her eye-opening 2020 story on ISIS recruiting Americans for over a year and her coverage of the women's prison system, for which she visited four women's prisons and spent the night in a maximum security facility in Atlanta, clad in a prison uniform and all. She also suffered major losses. That same year, her mother died. She then lost her husband a month later to a heart attack. Adjusting to life without these two very important people was especially difficult. She was incredibly close to her mother and had been lovingly married to her husband for 26 years. Friends described her and Nichols as a couple forever on their honeymoon. Just over a week before his death, he and Diane were spotted at a party. They were still holding hands till the very end. Katie bounced back from her talk show and into a position covering news for Yahoo.com. She also wrote a memoir titled Going There that went on to be a bestseller. As of the time of this writing, Diane was gearing up to interview Jeremy Renner following his life-threatening accident. There's no word yet on who scored the interview with his snowplow. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. 
Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening.